Padre Celestial, gracias por tu presencia en este lugar. Nos hemos reunido para adorar juntos y queremos que nos hables sin importar el idioma que hablamos, que tu voz se escuche claramente en nuestros corazones. Que tus palabras cobren vida en nosotros para que sabiduría y revelación nos transformen y nos cambien a tu imagen. En el nombre de Jesús oro. Amén. I've never been so nervous to say a prayer in my life. We're, you may not know this, but we have translation into Spanish every Sunday, and uh, people get a little radio out here, and there's a translator uh, back in the back, and, and we're going to continue with that today. But um, this, this is a, like an important thing to experience for us to celebrate one another and to celebrate uh, what God is doing in our church. One of my greatest experiences in church happened in a Spanish church. And here's this, this, the story. Um, I was 17 years old, and my parents had just um, were working through a, a really difficult divorce. And uh, my dad was a pastor, so I'm a pastor's kid. I'm working through this. The family falls apart. The church falls apart. I lose friends. <laughs> I lost my girlfriend. It was terrible. My wife said amen. And... Uh, And I, rem I remember being in this place where I was just like, I was, I was disillusioned. I was discouraged. I was so sad. I, I was brokenhearted and, and I was angry. I was angry that the world was falling apart and nobody seemed to be able to figure it out. How to put it back together. You ever felt that way? We've all been at a moment in our lives when we felt like everything was falling apart. I was 17 years old and so I was really discouraged. I had a friend and he uh, invited me to his church, a friend from school. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll come. And I didn't realize fully that it was an entirely Spanish-speaking-only congregation. But I, I went with him, and he told me it, was at, it, it started at 10. Um, it did not start at 10. <laughs> it, it, it started like at 10.37, something like that, <laughs> which... Um, Was a, uh, so I, I, I was standing around not able to talk to anybody because I didn't speak Spanish and I felt kind of lost, you know, in it. But then uh, a little by little, I mean, I just felt like, okay, well, here I am. And I kind of gave myself to it. But then they started singing and singing and singing and more singing. I don't know if you've ever been to a truly Latino service. They tend to last longer than Anglo services. And I didn't, I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> so I'm there, and they're, 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 they're singing songs I don't know, and they're singing in a language I can't understand. And so we get to this moment, and I, I remember it in the service. It was like, well, I either can just sit down and fold my arms, or I can begin to worship God myself and I felt like 
God was speaking to me in that moment, like he was visiting me in this place where I didn't know any of the songs and I didn't know what was coming, I didn't know what was happening, and his kindness began to be revealed to me and his goodness even in the midst of my hurt and my woundedness and my fear and my anger. And that worship service turned into a prayer meeting that lasted three and a half hours. And I remember, I have a vivid memory of standing to the side of the, of the auditorium, this linoleum. I remember the floor. I remember the chairs strewn around. And I remember God I remember myself pouring everything out. Pouring myself out to God and God pouring himself in. It's emotional for me because I this week I I went through a process where God reminded me of every time he revealed himself. Like special moments, you know, that 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 we all need where he reveals something to us, he reveals himself to us, he comes and you have an encounter with him, you have, a, you have a supernatural revelation, like you see him, you hear him, you experience him. In fact, I think every person has to experience that. The first time you experience it, it should be being born again, right? Like God's spirit coming alive in you. And I remember that happening to me at seven years old. But I remember at 17, something was happening to me. I was angry. I was disillusioned. I didn't want to have anything to do with God or the church. And here I was pouring my heart out, God pouring himself in. And as, as, that, as that memory was jogged in my mind, I was reminded of this, this series that we're in in Romans. Because I think this series in Romans is called Life in the Balance. And I think all of our lives are, in a sense, hanging in the balance. I think Romans gives us a picture of our lives hanging in the balance. And every one of us need moments where we break through in awareness. And we break through. God breaks through our circumstances. And he reveals himself in a way that just shares his power and his love and his mercy and his grace. And it floods your soul and it overwhelms you. And there are tears. And there's this overwhelming sense of his presence. I pray that you have that experience over and over again throughout your life. I've had it. I can see it. I can I see it at 17. I saw it at 21, 25, 28, 33, f f uh, 40 years old. I, I've seen it over and over again. I'm praying that this study in the book of Romans will create that for you and me, for our church. Because the book of Romans has this incredible effect on people and it's a historical effect if you if you look at history the book of romans has had a profound effect one major bible commentator says every great revival in history that ever started can somehow be related to this book john calvin the great protestant reformation writer and theologian said if a man understands romans he's a sure and open road to help him understand the entire bible I think that only comes by God's revelation. And last week we finished chapter 2, and we finished with this verse, and I just want to read it real quick. We finished with this verse. It's Romans 2.4. If 
you have your Bibles, you can look there, Romans 2, 4, and we're going to study Romans 3 today. But here's where we kind of left off last week. Or do you show contempt, is what Paul is saying. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, everybody say God's kindness. <laughs> God's kindness. God's kindness. I want you to say it, God's kindness. Yeah, now you're getting there. Some of you are still really resistant. It's okay. Because his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. His kindness comes all to us into our lives at a moment that we realize we cannot keep going the way we're going. We cannot keep holding on to what we have so tightly that we need to let go and let him come with his kindness. That's what happened to me in that Spanish church all those years ago. And so, as we look at this passage, I want you to see that, and I want you to be reading this book with me, the book of Romans, and I want you to, you to be praying about it because this book of Romans, I want God to use it and use it in our church as he, as he has throughout generation after generation to shift people who are stuck in a rut, stuck in a spiritual rut, shift people who have spiritual weakness and weariness. Sure, you might understand God with your mind, but you need a revelation. To shift people who feel frustrated with the world around them, to shift people who are hurting and need healing, this is what I want us to realize God wants to do in this study, to start a revival in our hearts. Not to do church or life as normal, but that there's a supernatural part of it. Now, I want you to encourage you as you as you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and, and the first few chapters of Romans, what you have to realize is that it's Paul's kind of shaping it up as he writes it as a courtroom scene. And you see the judge's bench and, and there's the jury and, and then the tables for, for the defendant and for the prosecuting attorney and, and there's an audience and, and, and he's talking about it in this context and he's using it as a, almost as a device uh, arguing different cases. Like, like we're going to see in this chapter how he argues a, 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 another side of the argument. But, but we see this, this courtroom scene being revealed and the charge is that mankind has been deliberately rejecting God. And he has deliberately rejected all that God has for him, for them, for her. The prosecutor is Paul. The accused is all of humanity. And so the prosecuting attorney is making his case, and Paul's making this case, that everyone in the world has done something wrong in their lives. And therefore, there will come a day when they will be judged. And so here in chapter 3, we see the Apostle Paul, and he's closing, making his, some closing arguments uh, as the prosecutor. And he does what any good lawyer does. Number one, he anticipates the questions of all those who are listening. Right? That's what a good prosecutor does. He can, and I can, as, even as I've been sharing over the last couple of weeks, I could hear the wheels turning in your minds as I've been talking about the wrath of God, as I've been talking about godlessness and wickedness. If you want to hear any of those messages, go to onechapel.com and listen to them. But the Apostle Paul can anticipate 
what the jury is thinking. Well, what about our unfaithfulness, he says in, in chapter 3, in the first few verses. And what about our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness? Does our unfaithfulness change God's faithfulness? What about our unrighteousness and God's righteousness? Does our sin make God look even better? That's a curious question, isn't it? That's, that's kind of the, that's Paul, the, the person who's, who's a, the accusing attorney, taking the argument to its illogical conclusion, right? There's a, there's a logical conclusion with this, with this idea. Does our sin make God look even better? In other words, should I sin more so that God looks even better? Because I'm pretty horrible. Second thing, he answers those questions in advance. The Apostle Paul does that by bringing in supporting evidence, all right? Through uh, testimonies, quotations from the Old Testament, he brings in these arguments. And I want you to read verse 5 in the Living Bible. It says, but some say our breaking faith with God is good. Our sins serve a good purpose. For people will notice how good God is when they see how bad we are. Is it fair then to, for him to punish us when our sins are helping him? That's really funny to me that people would think this way, but I think it's one of the arguments. He takes people's questions and arguments, he turns them upside down and brings them to their conclusion. But the third thing he does is he summarizes his conclusion. Verse 9 is where he does this. Verse 9, he begins to take all the arguments and he says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Are we any better than the people we're talking about? Are we any better than the people that are convinced they should sin more because it makes God look better? Are we any better than anybody else, is what he's saying. Not at all, he says. We have already made the charge that all Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. He's likely writing to Jews in, the, in this uh, city of Rome, in, in, the, in the Roman world, and, and he's, he's writing to these little uh, groups of, of Jews, but he's, he's trying to help them to see that God's doing something different bigger than just their own people group he's doing something greater than just dealing with the historical people who god chose to reveal himself through he's doing something so much bigger so much greater and he's but he's but it's hard for jewish people to get this because they're god's chosen people hard for them to figure this out he says we've already made the charge that all jews and gentiles alike are all under sin as it is written there is no one righteous not even one it's not your lineage not your parents god doesn't make you uh right with him on the basis of any of those things he says there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands no one who seeks god all have turned away they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one see here's the deal when you stand before god one day in that courtroom you won't be able to say i was innocent I didn't do any of those things. I was a pretty good person. You'll not be able to say, I didn't know. You want to hear more about that? Go, go back to the talk we had did on, on Romans 1. You'll not be able to say, I was a good person. You'll not be able to say, well, I went to church and I did some nice things. There's no one righteous. Paul says, not even one. And so the gavel comes down. Yeah, that is scary, isn't it? The verdict of guilty is declared. Guilty on all counts of godlessness, wickedness, and self-righteousness. Which brings us to verse 21. Two little words. But now. Everybody say it with me. But now. 
These are two little words, but they have huge significance. Because here the Apostle Paul makes a change. He takes off his prosecuting attorney hat and he puts on his defense attorney hat and he begins to give us an explanation of what God has done for you and for me. And in order to understand the life we're supposed to live, we have to understand this first. This is the basic Christianity 101. You've got to know what the grace of God and the kindness of God, what Jesus has done for us. And so the Paul, give, Paul gives us a, a technical definition of the gospel. Here it is in verse 21. It says, but now a righteousness from God. Everybody say from God. A righteousness from God apart from law, in other words, apart from rules, apart from obeying the rules, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, there was a prediction that this would come to pass. It's been talked about in Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's been, it's been uh, prophesied that there would be something that God would do with people's hearts and not have everything to do with the way that they acted. See, friends, what God has done for us is unearned. Unearned. It's, it's one of your fill-in-the-blanks there. What God has done for us is unearned. You don't become righteous by doing good works, trying to earn acceptance from God. You don't even, you don't even, you don't even become righteous by keeping the Ten Commandments. The religious leaders in Jesus' day kept the law perfectly, and he, he, he accused them, and he said, Look, your hearts are, are darkened inside of, your, inside of your lives. He called them, he said they were dead men's bones inside of a grave. Whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, full of dead men's bones. You, you're not made right with God by being a good person, going to church. Salvation comes to you apart from you obeying, apart from you doing anything, apart from any list of morals that you could embrace. And here's the thing, this in our humanity, we're kind of like, oh, is that really true? I'm not sure that's really true. Because I think God's mad at me when I do bad things. See, our tendency is to try to do good things. With our, oh, we need to, isn't that what you teach your children oh you need to do good things have you ever noticed that you have to teach your kids to do good things and you don't have to teach them to do bad things <laughs> everybody this is a sweet little baby oh so beautiful little baby oh there's wickedness in there just wait a couple years <laughs> i understand i understand there's an innocence to babies but what you have to understand is the human condition the human condition is full of selfishness and, and, there's, and because of that, there's an innate idea that we want to do things in order to earn our way to God, to heaven, to acceptance. Apostle Paul says none of these things are going to grant you what the great Billy Graham called peace with God. I fear that a, a bunch of us lack peace with God because we don't understand the very underlying message of the good news of Jesus. That his kindness has been shown to you. That you cannot earn it. That you cannot do anything to receive it. That it is given to you and to me 
as a relationship with God. There's only one way you and I find our way into a right relationship with God. It's verse 22. It says, this righteousness, which means our right standing before God, from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. You know, you could sum up the entire Christian faith in one word. Here it is. Ready? Faith. You can write Hebrews 11.6 in your, in your margins there. Because Hebrews 11.6, you know what it says? It says, and without faith, it is impossible. Everybody say impossible. You're stuck if you don't have faith. Here's the good news. God's given every person a gift. God's given every person a seed of faith. A measure of faith. And he wants you to turn it towards him. Faith, you see one chapel, all the religions of the world, they emphasize the doing to get the benefit. They emphasize doing as a way to please the God that they serve. They emphasize doing to earn something from the deity. We don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who says, if you'll only believe, if you'll accept me, if you'll accept what I have, if you will have faith, then I'll come and I'll put my spirit and life inside you. I'll make you reborn, and then you will begin to naturally work your way to living in the kingdom. It'll be a supernatural process, and it'll be an inside-out process, because I change you from the inside out. Are you guys with me? I get pretty excited about this, but I realize that some of you are like, yeah, the game's on later. No game's on now. There's no games. Just the Olympics. Sorry. Um, so, So let's just stay here for a bit. I think, you, I think you and I have to come to this realization. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 3 because he's shifting everything. He says there's one condition for us to get in on what God has done for us, and you simply have to believe it. Wait, isn't there more than that? Don't, once I believe it, don't I have to do a bunch of stuff? Isn't that what James says? No, don't misunderstand it. Don't misunderstand it. God has plenty for you to do. He has plenty of things he wants you to do. But you can do none of those things to try to be close to him. The only way you can be close to him is is if you have faith, if you believe, if you let him in, if you accept what he says, if you surrender your heart and your life to him, suddenly he comes and dwells with you and with me. And, And Paul the apostle says you have to believe. It's not believe and work really hard. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's like an elevator. Sometimes as a, as a Christian, we like, oh, I prayed the prayer, I became a Christian. Okay, now I have to start doing things. <laughs> I have to do better. Oh, I have to do a lot better because I was really a lousy person. Okay, God, I love you. So I, you did so much good stuff for me that I want to do good stuff for you. You're missing the point of the gospel. The gospel is it's free. The gospel is he loves you. The gospel is he has kindness towards you and Here's, here's what happens. He fixes the game. He puts his spirit in you so it n- naturally begins to work through all the stuff that you think and all the stuff that you do. And you slowly, purposefully, intentionally 
begin to follow him and your actions begin to change because of him, not because of you. What about when I sin, Pastor Ross? Yes, when you sin. You know what the best thing to do when you sin? Turn back to Jesus. That's the only thing to do, by the way. But lots of you who have been a Christian for a while, when you sin, you try to prove that you're okay before you go back and talk to God. There's like a thing in us that wants to prove that we're okay. It's like, it's like if you rode an elevator and you get on one of these high-rise buildings down in Austin and you get in the elevator and, and, you, and, you, and you push the 20th floor and you start going up and you're like, mm, I got to get off at the 7th floor. You hit 7, you get out, and you run up three flights of stairs. And then you get back in the elevator and then you go a couple more floors and then you get out again. Oh, I, I should do some good things. I should run back. Not only is it slower, it's silly. Now, you're thinking it through the lens of, well, my body kind of needs that. Yes. It'd probably, it'd probably be good if I just take the stairs all the time. What I'm talking about is God wants you to receive Jesus. He wants you to be in Christ, is what the, how the Bible des describes it. He wants you to be in him, and he comes to live in you, like you get in an elevator, and you go with Christ all the way up. You don't get out. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at two verbs here. Have sinned. Everybody say, have sinned. It means to miss the mark. That's what those words mean. The Greek language, these are archery terms. And so when you shoot an arrow, right, what happens is you, you try to aim for the bullseye, and you'd say, when you didn't hit the bullseye, you'd say, oh, the arrow sinned. It sinned. And so if you take your, if you take your, your, your um, archery set and you take that, what's that thing called? Bow. You take the bow and you, <laughs> you don't, you don't. You don't hold it like this. You, you hold it like this, and, and you take this out here, and you pull it back right here, and you aim for it, and you're aiming for that bullseye, and then you release, and you miss. The problem with most of you is you keep thinking that the Christian life is practicing your archery. You're never going to hit the mark. There was only one who hit the mark. His name was Jesus. You have to receive him. You only hit the mark in him. You, only, you, 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 can't, you can't practice enough to be good at being good. It doesn't work. So, so this, this, these words are, we've missed the mark of God's standard. And then the second verb is fall short. Fall short means to... to Literally, it's an athletic term. It literally means to fall behind in a race. And so the picture the Apostle Paul is giving here is that a race to get to God. We can never be good enough. We can never. Now, sure, there are some people who are faster than others. I, I, I know there are people in this world who are maybe even, uh, they're more moral than I have been. You might say to yourself, okay, that's fine. But no one can get there in that race. It doesn't work. You've fallen short. You will always fall short. Verse 24 says, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All right, three things about this verse really quickly. Three key words. Here they are. The first word is freely. Freely, if you want to 
you want to write that into your message notes. It literally means without a cause. In other words, you didn't do anything for it. The second word is redemption. Everybody say redemption. Redemption means to release by paying a ransom. Oh, I love that. This word redemption was used two different ways in Paul's day in the Roman Empire. It was used first to refer to slaves. Everybody say slaves. There was an open slave market. When Paul wrote this letter, there were half a million slaves in Rome. Half the population in Rome were slaves. And so if you had the money, you could buy a slave and put it up at auction. You go to the slave market, you could buy a person. In the Roman Empire, slaves did not have rights. So you could do with them whatever you chose. You could kill them, you could keep them, you could set them free. And this word is the Apostle Paul. That in the minds of the, of the first readers, they would have seen this. And he said, he said, you pay a redemption for them. And they would have visually understood this language because they'd seen it all around them with slavery within their culture. Secondly, it was used in the taking of hostages or kidnapping. For example, if someone kidnapped or held you hostage, you could pay a redemption, which was a, the agreed upon price to release that person back to you. And I want you to think about this courtroom scene that the Apostle Paul is bringing down. And it, it's the case against humanity, and it's cut and dried, and the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. There's no defense. God the judge picks up the gavel, and the words guilty are declared throughout the courtroom. Guilty on all accounts of godlessness. Guilty on all accounts of wickedness. And guilty of all accounts of self-righteousness. God declares the sentence is death. There's a commotion in the courtroom. You can see it. People are crying. They're weeping. How can this be? Just when all humanity was about to be let out of the courtroom and this execution and Satan himself is looking at it and he's rejoicing and, and demons are high-fiving each other, suddenly Jesus stands up. God strikes the gavel and says, Quiet in the court. And a hush falls over the crowd. Jesus asks if he may speak, and God grants him permission. Your honor, the evidence is clear, and the verdict has been pronounced on all of humanity. They are guilty, and their sentence is death. For their sins to be wiped away, death is required. What if, what if there were another solution? He said, may it please the court, I offer you my life. I will give you my life for their lives. I'm offering my life as the redemption price for their lives. And immediately, God doesn't hesitate. He says, done. And Jesus is taken out of the courts to be executed for all humanity to die for you and me. Jesus paid for your freedom and my freedom. And that leads us to this key word, justified. And it it is such a powerful word in this, in this verse because justified means, you can remember it this way, just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal term, a term used in a courtroom, and it literally means to declare not guilty, to be acquitted, to make right. In other words, justification is the legal act of God declaring guilty people guiltless. Whatever guilt you carry, he's declared you guiltless because of Jesus. Whatever sinfulness you've carried... And you've embraced whatever hurt and woundedness in your past. You give it all to him. Jesus takes your place and you are justified. All the charges against you are wiped out. I want you to think about this by watching a, a little movie clip. We're going to end 
here with this clip because this is one of, in, in, in literature, this is one of the best illustrations of this concept that we have. It's a French novel. You've heard of it. It's Les Miserables. And there's, there's this, it was written by Victor Hugo, and, 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 and the book is, 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 is so wonderful, but it's been made into all kinds of plays and theater and, and movies, and we're going to watch a scene where Jean Valjean, who's the primary character, he spent 19 years in prison. The idea of his own sinfulness and violation of the law has been imprinted on him, and he can see himself as nothing else. And he's on his way. He's been released from prison, but the mark of a thief is on him. He doesn't know how to get rid of it. And he stays in the house of a bishop. And he stays overnight. He gives him a bed to sleep on and gives him a meal. And we pick up the scene in the middle of the night. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed. <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. 
Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. happens to Jean Valjean is it transforms this moment transforms his life and it's something changes within him and this is this this is the most beautiful picture of what Jesus does in our lives we're going to come to the Lord's table right now and I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking wait he hasn't finished the outline I'll give you the I'll give it to you. Here, here it is. The ransom paid was Jesus Christ giving his own life. There it is. Past, present, and future sins. All the sins of your past. All the sins of your present that you carry with you even now, right here. And the sins in your future, Jesus ransomed you. I love these words. Jean Valjean, my brother. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Here's the last line, those two scriptures. In other words, there's nothing about what God has done that I can claim for myself. There's nothing that Jean Valjean could do. He stood there being freed. Nothing that he did on his own. There's nothing that I can be proud of because this salvation thing is all God's doing. It's all God's doing in your life. And you have to remember that we have to look to him for that because that's the only way his good news continues to be good news is we realize that we've got to keep turning to him, keep releasing our life to him, continue to allow him to show his kindness and his goodness to us. I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and I want us to come to the Lord's table and as you come to this table, I want you to see it as a place where you can experience a moment a moment like I had in that Spanish church at 17 years old, a moment where you can come to this table and you can leave whatever has been tormenting you here. You can leave fear and hatred. You can, you can lay down the sinfulness of your own soul and you can receive in turn, in return God's great love and life. All you have to do is have faith. Seems too good to be true, but this bread represents Jesus in his broken body, purchased for purchasing our healing. This cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins and our forgiveness. And I want you to come here and I want you to receive it. I want you to have a moment where the peace of God transforms your soul. So Father, we just come and we prepare our hearts and we ask you, Lord, to meet us here at this table this table that you have set for us. We look to you, Lord, forgive us of our sinfulness. The guilty verdict has been declared and, and we understand that. 
There's nothing that can save us, but Jesus has saved us. He's rescued us. He's called us. He's given himself to us and for us. We receive him now. We receive him and we believe in what we have done. In Jesus' name.